If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Matthew chapter 10. We will soon start reading from that chapter in verse 5. If you don't have a Bible with you or if you would like to use something besides your cell phone to not be distracted, there is a Bible provided for you in the pocket of the pew in front of you. And you can find Matthew chapter 10 and the passage, the beginning of the passage that we will be reading on page 764 of that Bible. And as you are turning there, let me remind you of what we spoke about last week. Jesus is going to send out the 12 that he has called to himself. And as he prepares to do this, he needs to prepare them for what's going to happen. So Matthew and Jesus together give us insight into this mission. And we talked about how rather uninspiring the disciples really were, but how that is actually inspiring for us. We talked about how they themselves will be gifted with the the very works that Jesus needs them to do as he sends them out, the importance and power of prayer. And the most persistent reason why anyone goes out on mission, why anyone is, is called to and desires to send the gospel out with people, That is the very love of God. But that preparatory work isn't done, and Jesus has more to say to the disciples as they go out to prepare them for what they are going to do and what they're going to face when they go out. Let us then read these further words of Jesus today, beginning in verse 5. There we read this. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, For the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, Do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved." When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those 
of his household. This is the word of our God. These words will stand, I think, as good practice for us because how we interpret the different actions and the different words and the different instructions of God to us at different times throughout the history of the church and the history of Israel is kind of an important thing. We know that this instruction is different than the instruction that we will get and the commission that we get in Matthew chapter 28. They're not exactly the same. We talked about that a little bit last week. But being able to decipher the differences between the two and how God has different instructions for different times within the church is terribly important. After all, when we come to try to deal with the law and interpret the law, the way in which we deal with that has to be determined upon the the nature of where we are in salvation history. As Ephesians 2 states, the Lord Jesus has set aside the law. It it is no longer in place for us. But that by no means doesn't indicate that we have no moral authority over us and that the law has nothing to help us with and nothing to teach us. But it does mean that we need to handle it and interpret it and use it differently. It does mean that the priesthood of old, the sacrifices, and even sort of the governmental nature of the law has been superseded by the blood of Jesus Christ. The same type of procedure then that's used here to understand what we are to do, what what we are called to be, and what the disciples were called to do, the differences between those two things can be helpful as we apply it to other types of um, moments in the church and and the instructions that God leads us in. Knowing that though, let's point out five different things about this text as we do. First, I want to point out something about the frontier of missions the frontier of missions. And here we see that the frontier is very, very limited. And Jesus tells his disciples very clearly that you are not to go into the towns of of the Gentiles and the towns of the Samaritans. Now, up in the Decapolis, the towns progressively as you go north get less and less sort of Jewish. But they're interacting a lot with Gentiles everywhere. But the further north you get, the more that these Jewish settlements will start to become smaller and smaller and smaller. We know the Jews are scattered all over um, Asia Minor and, and into Europe. We know that they're scattered there. But as you get to places like Cor- Corinth, you're going to find small pockets of Jews in that whole city Here, as you go toward the Sea of Galilee, what you find is that there are still Jewish towns, even though there might be Greek people there. And there are Greek towns, even though there might be Jewish people there. And what Jesus is telling them is, you go to the mainly Jewish towns, and you proclaim to mostly Jewish people. Go to the places where where large-ish numbers of Jews are expected. And I think that there are two reasons for this. You might ask, why, why should we be limited in the nature of the mission? Why? Jesus has already talked to Gentile people. He's already applauded them for their faith. Why limit that? I think there are two reasons here. First, recognize that at this moment in salvation history, not the moment we are at, but the moment we are at in Scripture, the law has not been set aside. Jesus will indeed do so not by abolishing it or ruining it or wrecking it or tearing it down, but simply by fulfilling it and bringing it to its rightful conclusion. It is in his death that the law is brought to an end, a death that has not come yet, blood that has not been spilled yet. And so the law is still, in a sense, there. So that passage in Ephesians 2 I mentioned, let us read from it. Ephesians 2, 13 and 15. 
Paul writes, now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away, not Jewish, you who were far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. The tearing down and the setting aside of the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations was done by his blood. But that blood hasn't been spilled yet. He hasn't died. Therefore, the one path to salvation at this time is still by faith, but through the law and through its relationship to the Jews. Please understand, when I say it's through the law, I'm not saying it's through works of the law, but faith at that time must have been demonstrated through the law which we see even Jesus upholding, which is why when he cleansed the leprous man in the beginning of chapter 8, he sends him to make a sacrifice in accordance with what Moses commanded because that was what lepers were supposed to do. Jesus is following the commands of the law. Faith is expressed through the law. And so, because faith is expressed through the law and that primarily through Jews, Jesus continues to point that direction. And secondly, though, The Jews are indeed special, and that is not undone by the presence of Jesus, whether before or after his death. They are loved by God. God has a special love for the people of Israel. He has given them prophets. He's given them commandments. He's given them his word. He's given them his promises. Therefore, God has given himself to them first and will continue to do so. Even Paul will say that the gospel is to go out first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. The frontier of missions is limited here. But it will not be so always. Upon the raising of Jesus from the dead and giving him all authority over all nations, Jesus then sends us out everywhere, but here it is limited. The second thing I would like to point out to you is the face of missions. Of all the points, this is the one that we will spend the most time on. The face of missions. What is missions supposed to look like? So Jesus severely limits geographically where the disciples are supposed to go, but then he does something that's even harder. He severely limits what they are to take with them. Some of this is quite understandable. The nature of dealing with the money here, any person can understand why Jesus says this. You received without paying. You received these things as a gift. You are to give them away as a gift. The gospel isn't for sale. So as you go out and you're going to heal people and you're going to proclaim the kingdom, you need to realize that God gave you the power to do those things. And so because God gave you the power to do those things, you're not to charge for them. He does make a a, sort of a consideration later when he says, you know, the laborer deserves his food. You know, if if you stay in somebody's house, you should expect that they're going to feed you. But he makes it very clear that you're not to acquire money from them. As a matter of fact, he says you can't take a bag with you. The purpose of that is to say that even if they gave you money, you would look at them and say, I don't know where I'm supposed to do with this. I've got no pockets, right? They didn't have cargo pants, which by the grace of God, we now have men. And we've got 85 different pockets. We can always find a place for something, right? They didn't have that. The bag was there to carry things around in. And Jesus says, not only are you not to acquire anything from them money-wise, but you're also not to have a bag that you can put it in. This should be part and parcel of the church when it comes to mission. The church, even the appearance that the church is in existence for money, 
that so many people of this world think that the church is here just to get into your pockets is itself an unqualified failure for so many churches. A good example that this is never to be the case is Elisha and Naaman back in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman, the Syrian army commander, comes to him and he's got leprosy and Elisha tells him what he needs to do to be healed and he's healed and he comes back to Elisha and he says, hey, I've got some payment for you. I believe that there is no God like the God of Israel and I want to pay you. And Elisha says, no, thanks, friend. We're good. Whether it is the actual acceptance of it or even the appearance of it, The church ought to resist the money of the world. This is why Crossway, although we don't say this all the time, I do want to be really clear about it. We will pass offering plates at the end of our service because there are things that we need money for to make this whole thing work. We need money for the building. We need money to upkeep it. We need money for for my family to live so I can be one who studies the word all the time. We need money for these things. But that is the function of Crossway and the function of our members. If we have visitors here, you are under absolutely no obligation to give. Now, if you put a 10 spot in there, we're not going to light it on fire in front of your face, right? We're not going to slap your hand when you go to put it in. You know, if you want to give, you are free to give. But, But we're not asking anything of you. We don't expect anything out of visitors, we don't want them to give. We, we know that the money that is meant to fund this church and the, the ministries of this church is to be given by the people of Crossway. So we, if we understand anything here, we, we get the acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts in verse 9, no bag for your journey, we get that. But Jesus doesn't stop there. And he goes on to say, or two tunics, so you can't have a backup tunic, or sandals, or a staff. You can't take those things with you either. And the question becomes, what are we supposed to do with this? Most of the explanations that I've heard of this don't work. I mean, whether it's the numbering thing, they think that, oh, he meant two staffs. No no one at that time carried around two staffs like they were going cross-country skiing or something. That just wasn't something that people did. We have two options, basically. Either we accept the fact that Jesus is literally telling his people, you are not to carry around a staff and you can't have sandals on your feet, or he is somehow being figurative. Now, frankly, I will tell you what I want it to say. I don't want it to say that we are supposed to go around shoeless. I like having shoes on. I don't like walking around barefoot. And so from a personal perspective, I just don't want that to be true. But anytime we seek to interpret the word of God and we're going to be dealing with something that's literally said, if we expect that we should be taking it figuratively, then we need to know good reasons why. The burden of proof is on people who don't want to take the word of the Lord as it is. I think that we can do that here. I think that we can understand that Jesus doesn't actually want us to go around without shoes on. When Francis of Assisi, it said, read this, that old monk of early Christendom. When he, when he heard this and when he read it, he decided to take off his shoes forevermore and he walked around the rest of his days barefoot. Good for him. I'm not going to do that. One of the reasons why is because it seems as though there are other texts that speak against this. This very same core sort of parallel text in Mark, Jesus says something completely different. 
There he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. So the, the idea there is different, right? You are indeed to, to wear sandals and you are to take a staff. Here in Matthew, it seems otherwise. So what does Jesus mean by this? I think that this is an exaggeration. The rabbis used to list these four, very four things as the things that they needed to have before they went on any journey. So at the very least, it's to appear different from them, but I think that there's something more here. Clearly, part of this is to make sure that you know and the others know that you are relying upon God for all things. The staff was not there because people had bad ankles in the day and they didn't have high tops, so they didn't have ankle support as they walked over rocky ground. It was there to beat back animals and to beat back robbers and thieves. It was a weapon that you would have on your journey. And so by not allowing them to take a staff, Jesus is reminding them that their protection must come from God. Their deliverance must come from God, which is important given what we will be talking about here in a couple of minutes when it comes to persecution. But I think that there's an even more interesting reason than all that. I think, at the very least, Jesus, given the money and given the way he's talking about what they take with them, Jesus wants them to look like the people they're going to deliver. He wants those people to know that his disciples are not above them. They're there to serve them. They're like them. They're there to help them. If the spiritual reality of the disciples and the spiritual reality of the the sheep who are lost, that they're going to witness to, are the same, then that spiritual reality should be matched by the physical reality of the two. One of my favorite songs it was released in 2008, and it's actually a song about King Louis XVI, which is very weird. I'm a sucker for songs that tell stories and songs about events in history. Um, this is why I like The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald and other songs like that. But this wasn't made by a, a folk musician. Uh, it wasn't, you know, a remake of another song. It's an original song, and it was actually written by a pop band named Coldplay. And uh, the song's called Viva La Vida, and it has one of my favorite lines in it, speaking of... Louis XVI's grandeur and his importance. The cycling chorus in it is this. I hear Jerusalem bells ringing. Roman Calvary choirs are singing. Be my mirror, my sword and shield, my missionaries in a foreign field. And that last line is just an amazing line about what Louis wanted. Louis thought... The Jerusalem bells ringing were the bells that would have been playing in Jerusalem as his army approached the gates as though he was the one who was going to liberate the city of God for God forever. And what he wanted everyone to know about him was how powerful and how mighty he was. So the reflection that they would see of him, his image would be seen in a sword and a shield, the letting of blood, the victory, the conquering of land the destruction of his enemies. That's what he wanted people to know about him. And he wanted people to come to him because that was the image that he was putting forward. In a different way, but with the same intent, did God not bring forward Jesus as a picture of himself? And how? Did he come as a mighty ruler? Did he come as a a great commander or as a, a high and lofty priest? 
No, he, he, he came to this earth as a child, as an as a infant in a womb, as a simple carpenter as he grew up, as a humble son, a man of sorrows, a man of sorrows who has no place to lay his head. He came as one of them. He was just like them. And if this is true of Jesus, should it not be true of us? If Jesus was to be so identified with the lowly and the humble, should not churches, should not missionaries, should not the people who take the very message of who Jesus was out into the world be so humble and lowly? We picture this for others in a couple of ways. First is by not picturing ourselves as sort of the success of the world. We don't try to demonstrate the glory of the kingdom of God by using the glory of the world. We don't present ourselves as rich and powerful and mighty to try and draw people in because that's not the goal that we have. We need to reckon hard with the fact that the church ought to appeal not to the mighty, not to the powerful, but to the small and the weak that our appearance in the world as individuals and as the church should manifest that very desire. Rome, by the way, and the Vatican is the absolute antithesis to this. Absolute antithesis. St. Peter's Basilica, which was ironically, if you trek it back far enough, the start of the Reformation, is a testimony to the power of Rome, an opulent display of money and authority. The greatness of Rome's power. And in that, it is a rejection of the power of the kingdom of God. But lest, lest you think that we are just Rome bashing, let me make it very clear. Smaller churches do exactly the same thing, only they do it worse. Evangelicals do this too. They just do it without the style of the Pope who knows how to dress. They appeal to the world by the means of the world. But tight jeans and jokes are not the images that we need to be invoking. Neither are suits, by the way. We must be careful in our lives and in the church that we don't do the same, that we don't try to win people by making it seem like we've got the things in the world that they want because we're not calling them to the world. But the second way that we can mess this up is just as costly. Some are content to separate themselves so much from the world that they picture themselves as holier than everyone else, as though they're better than the people that they're going out to try and win. There should be some truth to that, right? We are to be holy as Christ is holy. We are to be, be called into increasing our holiness and sanctification. Now, I don't think that, I'm, I'm not getting at that, so don't hear me wrong. There. I'm not saying, like, you should, live, you should live unregenerate lives in order to reach the unregenerate. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying this. You can never forget, and you can never present for a second, that what you are doing is calling people to be holy as you are holy. Or to present yourself in some way, shape, or form as having made it as you are so distinct from the world that, that you, you can't even go into the stench of the world because it would infect you or something like that. You're already infected by it. You're not holier than them. There is no moment in any day that you have ever lived, no, no second 
no iteration, nor will there ever be as you move forward in time where you will need the grace of Christ less than the moment that you were saved. No matter how holy you get, you are still fully and completely needing the grace of Christ to keep you from hell. And without that grace, you are destroyed. You are the same as every other person out there. So remember, you are the face of Jesus sent out to the world. You are called and sent by the commission of Matthew 28. You are the face of Jesus. You are his missionaries. You are the ones who go out to image God through Christ to the world. Will you picture him as a sword and a shield? Has the, the height of worldly power and strength? Or as Jesus seems to desire, as a simple shepherd caring for the flock? That is the face of missions. Third, let's talk about the focus of missions. God might have, if he so chose, to win the world over any way he wanted to. He is unlimited in his power and his might and his reach and his authority. So if he wanted to just send the Spirit down and convict them of the gospel and to speak silently to them about the goodness of Jesus Christ, he could have done so. He could have sent those he elected signs and wonders and written for them in the sand the very news that Jesus had died for their sins. He could have written it in the stars. He was unhindered in the way that he did this. Yet, what he chooses to do even here is to send us out. He places the gospel in our hands and he says, go. And unlike God, we are quite limited. We're limited in holiness. We're limited in knowledge. We're limited in wisdom. We're limited in effort and desire. And not like sinfully limited in effort. There's only so much we can do. This means that the mission that we are going on must make the most of the resources that we have. And Jesus helps the apostles to realize this as he sends them out. The means of identifying people who respond well to the gospel and working with them as a way to to increase the good use of those resources. You find someone to stay with, and if they're hospitable, if they're charitable, let their peace stay there. If they're listening to you, your peace will fall upon them and it will stay there. But if they don't, if they reject you, if they will not accept the message, if they, the town or the house says, you need, to, you need to leave us, what Jesus says is that you are to shake the dirt off your feet. In other words, their rejection is met with your rejection. They say, we want nothing to do with you. You need to leave our town. You say, I want nothing to do with your town either. The shaking of dust off is a way of saying, I don't even want the dust of your town on me. In this way, what Jesus is calling for us to do is to focus our resources on those places and those people who seem most apt to respond to it. And it's not that people who are hardened can't be broken by the Spirit. It is just a matter of resources. And it doesn't mean that there are not people who are sent to difficult places, to labor in difficult places for a long time. We need those types of people. And God does indeed call them there. But in general, this is the way we ought to work. And Paul, by the way, does this very thing. He will spend years in a place where he, is, where he thinks the work is good. 
that he thinks is important and vital and strategic. And he will spend weeks and sometimes even days in places where he's not getting anything at all, where his life is threatened and he will leave immediately. Notice, by the way, this is not simply a way of saying, hey, we'll come back and get to you later. Jesus is very clear. I say to you, in verse 15, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Their rejection is not your fault. You can preach the gospel to people. You can fail in your, in your life, and there are things that you can do that are right and wrong, but ultimately, the rejection that people have of the gospel of God is not your fault, nor is it your praise if they follow you. It is up to the will of God and the kindness of God. This doesn't mean that when you leave them, you don't pray for them and you don't love them. Many of you have got people in your lives that you've been praying for and you've been preaching the gospel to for years who are hard in their hearts. It doesn't mean that you don't stop interacting with them, that you don't, you don't, you don't pray for them, you don't love them, you're not kind to them. It simply means that we need to make sure that we are putting our resources where those resources are best used. This is the focus of missions. But then there is, fourth, the fallout of missions. Jesus wants us to be well prepared for the anger and the angst of the world. The message to give up on the power and the lust that this world has on the things of itself is not going to be well received by anyone. Some people simply want to reject God. Some people want a God who will let them tinker around with the things of the world. The, the calling of people out of their little kingdom and into the kingdom of God is always going to be met by rejection. But the rejection of the world is not meant to come as a surprise. If the disciples think that because the harvest is ripe, that means that the picking will be easy, they're wrong. It will come with thorns and thistles. If they had this idea, it certainly did not come from Jesus, and Jesus is seeking to lay it to waste very, very quickly. Such opposition should, I think, bring grief and sorrow, not only because of our own persecution inside of it, but for those who are bringing that persecution. If it's, if it's better for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, we can appreciate the kind of judgment that's coming upon those who reject the gospel of God. And it should bring grief, excuse me, it should bring grief and sorrow, but it cannot possibly be a surprise. How many times have you heard Christians say, well, I can't believe that they, they're going to lock up a pastor for doing this or for doing that. Every Christian anywhere should believe that that can happen. As though the first, the first Amendment is somehow the antidote to sin and the rejection of the gospel of God that no one else in history has ever thought of. Yes, they're going to lock people up. And it should be grieving to us, whether it's in Western Europe or in Canada or even if that creeps into the United States, it should, be, it should bring grief and sorrow to us, but never, ever should it be a surprise. The world stands against the Lord. And please understand, I'm not saying the world stands against the morality of the Lord. It may, and it often does, but it doesn't have to. Those cultures of the past and in some places, even the present, that have a morality that stands in line with ours, oftentimes stand against the Lord. Know that the, the Pharisees had an incredibly strong moral fiber, and they stood against the Lord. 
The world doesn't just stand against his morality. They stand against him. They don't want his rule, even when they sort of kind of follow his rules. The proclamation of the gospel is sacrilege to them. It's an offense that deserves the chastisement of judgment, if not death. So you will be delivered over for judgment. You will be flogged. Jesus, by the way, makes this all the worse in verse 22 because it's not just the rulers and the authorities that are out there. It's your family. It is everyone, verse 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. That stinks, right? Being hated by all doesn't sound like it's an incredible amount of fun. Brothers, fathers, children, parents, they will all turn upon one another. The final word of everyone hating us just sort of puts the nail in the coffin. If you expect that as a missionary or as anyone who goes out to proclaim the gospel, that people are going to sort of fall down on their knees and grasp your hand and say, thank you so much for bringing this good news and, and open up an immediate praise to God the Father for showing them and for bringing you to them because how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Jesus wants you to know that that's unlikely to happen. The only grasping of hands that this world is going to make is likely for arrest. And the only people they're likely to praise are the ones who do it. This doesn't mean that the mission that God has for you will not still go forward. It doesn't mean that it will not be a powerful working of the Spirit to bring in that vast harvest. You just shouldn't be surprised when it doesn't always work that way. The mission of God is not for the faint of heart. This persecution is the fallout of sin. It's the fallout of being in a world that's filled with sinners. Sinners don't just do what is wrong. They reject that which is right. The world is at war with God. This is what sin does. It is the fallout of sin. And the fallout of the world's rejection of God comes to God's people as well. My friend recently sent me a headline. And we both found it funny, not because of what the headline was telling us, but because of the headline itself. The headline read... The grandson of Jimmy Carter says, quote, we're in the final chapter, unquote, in a health update. Jimmy Carter is turning 99 years old on October 1st. No matter what turn his health makes, he's in his final chapters. And I'm not wanting Jimmy Carter to die. And I wouldn't take, I'm not, I don't think that his death and his sickness and even his age is funny. But the idea that we need to be told that Jimmy Carter is in his last days is kind of odd. If you are 99 right now, I have bad news for you. The end is coming, and it's coming quicker than it is for the vast majority of people. So no one outside of an episode of Seinfeld would look at that and be like, what a surprise, he had so much time left. These things might grieve us, and they might sorrow us, but they should not come as a surprise to us. The end of sin is death. The fallout of sin in this world is the rejection of the kingdom of God. And if they reject Jesus, why should we expect better treatment at their hands? Part of being a church on mission is knowing that those mission videos you see, where they have the sun behind them, it's a peaceful setting. They've got the Bible open and some, some indigenous people around them and they're, they're reading it and they're praying and they're looking at the Bible. Like Those things happen incredibly infrequently. 
the vast majority of the time on the mission field, it is nothing but rejection and rejection and rejection and rejection. Not only do we need to be prepared for that as we witness to people, we need to be prepared that people are going to reject the gospel. But on top of that, to remind ourselves that there are places where this is an incredibly dark reality. And as we've already done today, to continue to pray for missionaries in the mission field, that they be encouraged, that they stand in hope, that they persevere to the end. Because the fallout from missions is deep and it is dark and it is horrible. Yet the word of the Lord doesn't stop there. Let's talk fifthly about the faithful and missions. Verses 18 and 19 make it clear that persecution, I don't think, is outside the scope of God's sovereign pleasure in missions. In, chapter, in verse 18, it says that you're going to be dragged before the magistrates, but for a reason, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles for my sake. That God knows about this. He's not just saying, hey, this is going to be kind of a hardship for you. This is going to be unfortunate for you, but yeah, nothing I can do about it. He makes it seem like, I want this to happen. This will indeed come upon you for my sake. In verses 19 and 20, the Father has prepared you for this so that the Spirit might speak through you. Don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't worry about formulating words because the Spirit has picked this time to put you there in this particular amount of trouble so that you might speak the words of God to these magistrates. God uses persecution so that he speaks to the principalities and the powers, to the great in the world, through those who are considered least and no ones. To face persecution in the world means that we must rely upon God's faithfulness to the end. The implication here, I think, is clear. God will indeed use you for his own good ends. And if that means difficulty coming to you, it will be difficult. But he by no means will discard you. He's not going to give up on you whether it's through flogging, through jail time, whatever it might be that eventually comes down to you, the, the rejection of you at work and the turning around of your friends from you, regardless of what that persecution looks like, God will not let go of you. His faithfulness is true to the end. A man who was written right about the time, was written, a man who was born right around the time that the book of Matthew was written by the name of Polycarp. He died in 155, and he was bishop of a town called Smyrna. And at that time, the magistrate who was there was looking to get Christians in trouble, and Polycarp was the most obvious target of this. And so eventually they found and arrested Polycarp, and the magistrate looked at him, and he said, listen, this isn't really a big deal, Polycarp. Uh, we've got a way for you to get out of the trouble that you seem to find yourself in. Here's what you need to do. You need to swear allegiance to Caesar. You need to repent and say, down with the atheists, Atheists being Christians because they only believed in one true God, not in the pantheon of God. So the Greeks called them atheists. They were without gods. And you are to give reproach to Christ. And you'll be set free. Nothing more. No beatings, no floggings. No fire, no, no butchery at the hands of wild beasts. We'll, just, we'll let you go. Polycarp, an old man at this time, as you'll see, was said to have said this. Eighty-six years. It's not 99. It's 86. Eighty-six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. 
How can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? That, that is the faith that God wants you to have. He wants you to have a faith that can stand up to the kind of persecution that the world wants to send your way. Not denying persecution in the world, but also not allowing that persecution to define whether or not God is faithful to us. Polycarp was facing execution. And he wasn't sort of torn apart by this idea that maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe because this is happening to me, God has departed from me. No, he, he says, he's been good to me everywhere. Why would I turn my back on him now? Faithfulness, however, doesn't mean this sort of stubborn foolishness. Jesus doesn't simply call on us to stand and take it, but to flee if possible. Paul, again, is a good example of this. He oftentimes just flees from persecution. They, there's a mob, there's a riot, and Paul is scampering out of town as quickly as he can. It's not because he's weak. It's not because he's, he's despising the, the goodness of the gospel and, and the power of God to deliver him. It's because he's wise. It's not a weak faith that understands the hatred of the world when it's pointed at your throat and seeks to escape. But Jesus is clear. Regardless if you can escape or you can't, the one who survives faithful through persecution, who realizes the faithfulness of God through the fog of hate and fire will indeed be saved. The picture of salvation here is not just eternal salvation either. It's not just a salvation that will occur at the end of time. It's a salvation through this event. Polycarp's faith helped him deal with his martyrdom. It saved him and let it be known. It wasn't that he got out of martyrdom. It was that he got through martyrdom. We may not all, although it is unlikely here in this place at this time, that we will undergo any sword or jail. Nevertheless, not all will avoid it. But by faith, we get through it to glory. Don't be afraid of the hatred and the anger of the world and the fallout of sin, for God is faithful always before you, in times of plenty and famine, in times good that are good, times that are bad, when the sun is shining, when the rain is falling, God is faithful to you. He will be good to you. And hear again those final words of Jesus as the assurance of our own persecution. As they do to the master, as they do to the teacher, they will do to the, the subject, and they will do to the student. We are not greater than him. If they brutalized and tortured him and, and killed an innocent man, why would they withhold anything from us? But importantly for us, there's a corollary to that statement. If the world treats us as it treated Jesus, know this, so will the Father. Jesus laid down his life for us, dying for our sins, defeating death for us. God the Father judged justly. He gave him life from the dead, so he will also do with us. In Jesus Christ, we receive from God what is due to his own son. If the Father gave up his son for us and raised him up to glory, giving him glory that he would then share with us, what would he withhold from us? What evil can possibly befall you that is worse than what Jesus suffered and thereby can convince you that God's love has departed and gone elsewhere? Nothing worse could possibly 
occur to you than what happened to Jesus Christ. But he was assured that the love of God was upon him, and all the more assured can we be that the love of God is upon us through the work of Jesus Christ. The same love that raised him from the dead is now ours by faith. So face the persecution of the world and be the face of Jesus Christ to the lost and the dying. Stand strong and wait for the provision and the power of God. Let us pray. God, give us the faith and strength we need to stand against this world and its hate. Let us not give in to that same feeling. We are prone to hate as it hates, to despise as it despises. But let us stand faithful before the world, loving even our enemies. And in doing so, may your grace and love be imaged well in your people, that the face of Jesus Christ and his power might shine all the more in our weakness. Be glorified among us. We ask this for our good and for your glory. Amen. If you would stand and arise and sing, O church, arise.